Folks, we're back with part two, talking about treasury and cash management with Russ Anderson. And of course, back of the microphone with me is the famous Jack Nunnery. Good to have you back on here, Russ. I'm looking forward to continuing our discussion. We started yesterday in the podcast. And folks, we have gotten a lot of responses. Not surprising. They're mostly CFOs that are responding and they're going, hey, this was great talk. I can't wait for the rest of it. So let's get it going. Jack, if you would start us off by again, explaining why banks see this as a real advantage and also how it's just a really great symbiotic relationship. Well, first of all, David, I'm not surprised that the audience that is most interested in this is CFOs. It's important that you look at your treasury management function at an independent mortgage banker as a potential source of revenue. And if you're not making money off of your treasury management, you're leaving money on the table. Russ, great to talk to you again. Yesterday, we focused a lot on the mechanics of independent mortgage bankers and cash management. Today, I want to talk a little bit about larger IMBs. But before we get there, let's talk about why this is important to banks. Banks earn money from basically two different sources, interest income and fee income. And at least it's my perception, Russ, that fee income is a very important component from a bank stock analyst view of the performance of a commercial or a consumer bank. What do you think about that, Russ? No doubt. I mean, fee income is critical to a bank. They are looking for all different ways to, to generate fee income. You mean everything from investment banking to treasury management and equipment leasing. I mean, there's a number of things that they use to gin up some fee income, but treasury is definitely one of the biggest contributors because banking requires transactions. Lots of transactions is good for a bank. When you look at the mortgage industry, there are a lot of transactions between wires, ACHs, and all the money's in and money's out. So they love that from the independent mortgage banks where there's lots and lots of transactions and that all generates fee revenue. Is it fair to say that stock analysts view fee income as more stable and recurring as compared to interest income? Yes, because fee income continues no matter what. When the economy goes down and loans aren't being made, I mean, let's face it right now, most of the loans are being made in the real estate industry. And that's why it's so important right now. Most of the commercial industrial stuff isn't getting a lot of lending right now. So that's cyclical. And everybody knows mortgage business is cyclical too. But when you have any kind of downstroke on those things, then you're going to see less interest income. So that fee income is always there because there's always transactions. Russ, on the last podcast, you talked about mortgage banks need to view their banking relationship holistically. My question is, what is the single biggest mistake that larger IMBs make in handling the deposit side of a banking relationship as a silo? Yeah, I think what happens is if you treat any element of what you're doing with your bank as a silo, you're making a mistake. You're basically commoditizing your banking relationship. And when you commoditize your banking relationship and treat each different element and try to get the lowest cost for every one, then you've just commoditized the whole financial services products that you've purchased. And what's always shocking to me is our customers will do something like that and commoditize their financial services. And then they're shocked when something goes wrong in their business. Business and the bank treats them like a commodity. And that's why financial relationships are more important than trying to just divvy it all up and get the best price possible. Okay. So, Russ, larger IMBs should be looking at their deposits 
for example, PIT accounts, MSR, and advanced financing, and their warehouse relationship all as a single financial services item. Should they lever each other to find benefit? Yeah, absolutely. What some of the best clients that I've had got the full picture in mind when they would come to the bank. They would look at everything that they were doing from soup to nuts. They'd see their warehouse financing, their MSR financing, their advanced lines, and their deposits, including their PI and TNI accounts, as a single line item. So what they would end up doing is negotiate a price, if you will, across the board. One may be higher than they would have liked to have seen, but the other may be lower than what they expected. So in the end, what they do is they price the entire relationship so that everybody's happy. They're getting the returns where they need to get the returns and they're taking the hits where it's most comfortable to take the hits. But across the spectrum, they're getting exactly what they want. When you start divvying it up, you end up making everybody unhappy, basically. So you need to try to look at it as a single product within your financial services with that bank. Russ, I'd like to focus for a moment on the P&I and the T&I custodial accounts. Do you think that banks are familiar with seller service or guidelines around what's allowable and not allowable with regards to P&I and T&I custodial accounts? No, they really aren't. And that's one of the things I oftentimes caution independent mortgage banks on is that it's not the bank's seller servicer ticket that's on the line when they're playing fast and loose with those P&I and T&I accounts. So banks will do what you tell them to do in terms of paying interest or using them however you want to. Really, the seller servicer guidelines are what independent mortgage banks need to scour to understand what they can and cannot do with these deposits. Banks aren't going to do it. They really don't care. Most of them are just happy to have the deposits and they'll do what you ask them to do with them. But you've really got to get into the Fannie, Freddie and Ginny seller servicer guidelines and know exactly what they say and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Oh, do banks care about what the seller servicer guidelines outline for appropriate compensation for P&I and T&I accounts? Not really. I mean, again, it's not their ticket on the line. The IMBs have got to decide how far they're willing to push the envelope when it comes to that, not the banks. Unless the banker is unusually familiar with the mortgage market, which is really, really rare, they're not going to give you very good guidance. You're going to have to go on your own. I've spent a lot of time pouring through those things as a banker so that I could provide adequate advice to our clients on what they should and shouldn't do and what they could and couldn't do. But it wasn't a very widespread practice among the banking industry. But I think that's part of what made our offering so good is that it covered industry from the industry's perspective. Russ, not wanting to get deep into the solar service or guidelines, but are there differences between regulations around GSE versus Ginnie Mae and then P&I versus T&I? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the Gini guidelines are pretty straightforward. I mean, they just basically say non-interest bearing accounts, period. Fannie and Freddie allow for the P&I accounts to earn interest on the IMBs can keep. The T&I, however, are subject to the laws of each individual state that the servicing occurs in. For example, California requires a 2% return on T&I accounts for 
their residents. I think there's 12 other states besides California that have specific guidelines. The scary part is there's a lot of states that are silent on the subject, which means they just have yet to speak on it. So you just have to be careful with that. Normally, the interest requirements that the states have put in place are pre-programmed into subservicing platforms or servicing software so that it will actually take care of it for most of them. But banks don't know any of that. So Russ, can you talk about some of the things that you've seen in the marketplace that were pushing the envelope on the seller servicer guidelines around these custodial accounts? I think our listeners would find that to be interesting to try to determine where that bright line is. Right. Well, I've seen tons of it, particularly in the Ginny world, where people will push the envelope too far in trying to get returns for the monies that are under their control. I think everybody needs to keep in mind that the money is not theirs. It's technically consumer money. So when the regulators look at it, they look at it from that perspective. In in Ginny's example, people were getting paid for the deposits and it was blatant. They just were plain and simple getting a return on those deposits. And Ginny found exception with that. I've seen examples where many states, one in particular in dire need of revenue, will interpret their own rule in the strictest of manner, meaning if you've earned anything on anything, they want it. So there's a lot of times where mortgage banks have pushed the envelope a little bit too far and gotten on the radar. You have to understand that everybody's odd every one of these accounts. I mean, not just Ginny and Fannie and Freddie, state regulators or auditors are looking at these things. I mean, everybody's scrutinizing what a mortgage bank's doing. So kind of have to be really careful on what you're doing with those deposits and how you're handling them and what the structure is behind how you're getting any kind of compensation for them as an independent mortgage bank. There are ways to do it that fall within the rules that will not make anybody's radar, but you have to be a little bit up to date on what's going on currently in the market to avoid the traps. I think that's a really good point. I want to jump in on that question. I want you to expand on that. My concern is this. It's not the things that we know that get us. It's the things we don't know. It's oftentimes those blind spots. Your experience in working with so many independent mortgage bankers of all sizes, what's the number of individuals out there that this could bite based on your conversations in the past? It ranges. I'm telling you, I've seen huge companies who have zero concern over what they're getting for their deposits with the bank. I mean, if they get audited, they get audited. If they get fined, they get fined. Then I've also seen huge mortgage banks who are a bunch of nervous Nellies, basically. They really don't want to take a chance. And honestly, most of them are pretty circumspect about why. They don't want to put their ticket at risk. It's not worth it to them. They make their money on spread, on their volume. They don't make it on the edges with their deposit dollars. It doesn't make sense to take that bigger risk for that amount of money when you're running a mortgage bank. And then smaller banks, most of them rely quite heavily on somebody like me who can sit there and tell them exactly what they can and can't do with those deposits and how they should treat them. There's been some instances where people have used ways to get things paid for within their business. And it's typically okay, depends on the state, but it's typically okay to run an invoice back to your bank to pay for it if it has to do with your financial operations. But if you're sending your bills for the temp agency to the bank to pay, that's not what they have in mind. Does it cost you to run the software that's connecting you to the bank? Then yes, you can invoice something like that back to the bank and use your deposits to pay for something like that. Again, you have to take a look at each individual thing and see what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. 
acceptable. I did have a conversation once with Jenny about what they consider to be fair compensation for their deposits. And they specifically said a discount on a warehouse line, that makes sense. Maybe some discounts on MSR facilities, that makes sense. And I said, well, how deep a discount? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, how about zero on a warehouse account? And they rocked back on their chairs and said, yeah, that's way too far. I mean, that's just so important to establish the boundaries and get some sense on those. It doesn't sound like there's a real bright lines, but this is where someone like yourself who has the experience that you have could advise and help people become aware of at least some of the boundaries that you've experienced on these kind of conversations. Yeah, I've seen the pitfalls. I've seen where people fall into traps and I know the states that are out there trolling for money and where you need to be careful with those particular states. I mean, they're the obvious suspects, but even still, you have to be careful on how you treat that servicing versus another state servicing, Fannie servicing versus Genie servicing. And even some investors have specific guidelines for non-agency loans that you have to really scour their guidelines to make sure that you're staying within their rules too. And I've spent plenty of time looking over that stuff too. Russ, a little while ago, we were talking about the custodial accounts are the consumers, not the mortgage bank. And I just want to lock that concept down and make sure that our listeners understand why those funds are considered to be consumer dollars. Are those funds insured by the FDIC? They are. They're fully insured. And that's the thing that you have to keep in mind. I can't count the number of times I've talked to an independent mortgage banker that say, my deposits, my deposits, my deposits. They're not their deposits. They belong to the consumers, whether it's P&I or T&I. Frankly, on a P&I account, you can make an argument, but still that money belongs to that consumer until it's remitted back to the investor, period. It's in the hands and in control of the mortgage bank, but it's not their money. So when you look at the FDIC insurance on it, it makes it pretty clear. All of it's covered and it's covered because the FDIC looks at each dollar, whether it's principal and interest or tax and insurance as covered under the consumer's umbrella. So if very few people have a mortgage payment that exceeds $250,000 or taxes and interest that exceed $250,000. So all those accounts are covered by the FDIC. If the FDIC sees those as consumer deposits, you can make sure that the other regulators are going to look at it that way too. Some of them more aggressively than others, admittedly, but keep it in mind when you're dealing with these things. Russ, I want to put myself in the shoes of an IMB right now. I have servicing. I use a subservicer for the purpose of servicing those loans. Should I be concerned that my subservicer is adhering to agency and GSE guidelines? Probably not if the subservicer has complete control over your deposits. And the reason why is that subservicers have enormous costs when it comes to banking, just straight up banking. They're the ones that are doing all the transactions. So they need those dollars to offset those fees. They're not making any interest on that money, which keeps them safe. They are also required to keep all the states up to date in terms of the interest owed back to the consumer. So subservicers are pretty good about keeping you out of trouble. Where you get into trouble is when you have control over your own deposits, which I still suggest that when you review your subservicing agreements, 
you look at those paragraphs, almost every independent mortgage banker I've ever talked to just blows right past that part of the subservicing agreement. But you need to have some sort of control over those deposits, even if you're letting your subservicer do it all for you. And even if you're letting your subservicer put it in their bank so that they get the credit for it, you still should have some measure of control over those deposits to move them if it is in your best interest. Okay, Russ, that was a great point that you just made there about control of deposits. If you retain control of the deposits, could that cause the subservicer to increase the cost of servicing to you as an independent mortgage banker? Since there is obviously a financial benefit to the subservicer if they control the deposit. So if you take control from them and you reap that financial benefit, does that come back to bite you on the other side because the subservicer is going to increase the cost of servicing? It could, but that's the thing you have to figure out when you're making this decision. I suggest everybody maintain control, even if they grant that control back to the subservicer to use to offset their cost at the bank. But if you make the discovery that you can get a better return for your business by maintaining control in a separate entity away from the subservicer, even if your costs for subservicing goes up, you still marginally come out better, then it's worth it. So my advice there would be to keep flexibility. If it makes more sense to reduce your subservicing costs with the deposits now, then do it. Later on down the road, that equation may flip and you may want to use those deposits to benefit the business in a different way. David, do you have any other questions? As we wrap up this discussion, and Jack, you've had some great questions. I love some of your responses. Obviously, the two of you have worked together. So you're trying to educate our listeners as we go back and forth. And I just love the fact that you have that strong relationship and a previous working relationship. You saw a lot of circumstances. We've covered a lot of material here today, Russ and Jack. But what have we not covered, Russ, that you think is important that our listeners understand or hear? Well, I think what's most important is to reiterate, read the seller servicer guidelines and read your subservicing agreement. Those things have traps in them. That's the one thing that I did offer up that I don't think there's another banker out there that did it would actually offer to review your subservicing agreement for you so that you would understand what you're getting yourself into. A lot of times people would not realize that there may be a different subservicing agreement within the same subservicer for Nevada versus Iowa. And I saw across the board, all of them, and they would try to push cost for something, a claim up some area of the country that they didn't charge the same thing in another area of the country. So those things are good to compare and contrast as you're entering into them. And I don't think a lot of IMBs really do that. And you need to really consider who your subservicer is going in. That's such a good point, Russ. We've run out of time. We could keep going on this topic, but this is just really, listeners, the purpose of this is to introduce this topic, get it started, and get you thinking about it. You can reach Russ by emailing russ, R-U-S-S, at tms-advisors.com. And you can also get a hold of Jack, Jack, at tms-advisors.com to learn more. Jack, Russ, thank you so much. This is, again, one of those topics that so many people just don't have the knowledge about. And you have at least created a podcast that we can share out to the audience. So thank you for part two of this. Go back. If you didn't listen to part one, listeners, go back and listen to that. Jack, I'll let you wrap it up. Well, I think this is such an important area that gets overlooked in the business, David. We're all about producing loans and closing and shipping. And this is a profit center, listeners. 
And if you develop expertise in it and manage accordingly, you can turn your treasury and liquidity area into a revenue generator for the mortgage bank that you work for. That's very important. People understand that. If you want more information, again, get a hold of Jack and he will connect you with Russ or just get a hold of Russ directly. We look forward to hearing from you listeners on this, if this is valuable and if there's other topics or you want more depth on this, we'll get Russ back on the podcast. You can tell he enjoys this and uh, this is an area of great expertise. Jack, thank you so much for introducing us to Russ. I'm thrilled to have both of you a part of what we're doing and helping mortgage bankers across the board. Thank you very much, gentlemen. 